Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Kevin Woolman, founder of Southern Scholar. While working in the corporate tax world, Kevin realized the issue of typical socks sliding down the leg and not holding up. Realizing this issue, Kevin was inspired to create Southern Scholar as it is today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Woolman of Southern Scholar. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. You got it. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um, all right. Let's see. Get right in there. Um, <laughs> I was born in Mammoth, California. It's a very small kind of mountain town um, in California. Um, was there until I was about eight and then family moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. So just polar opposites here. Larger city, much warmer, obviously. Uh, dad was just kind of tired of shoveling snow. Um <laughs> But lived a pretty, I guess, you know, I guess you'd say cookie cutter kind of suburban uh, life growing up, um, yeah. played sports and, you know, ran around playing roller hockey with the neighborhood kids and um, stuff like that. So pretty normal uh, little upbringing. Gotcha. Did you ever have an entrepreneurship mindset growing up, say a lemonade stand or sell any products? I did. Um, <laughs> let's see. I've got quite a few. Uh, when I was probably in fifth grade fourth or fifth grade um i used to save all my halloween candy after halloween and save a couple mm. of, you know wait a couple of months until all the other kids had run out of theirs yeah and then i would bring it to school and sell it each day um <laughs> and i loved this story especially when starting to do podcasts and whatnot uh, because it was a little bit more unique than a lot of people's you know lemonade stand story mm-hmm. and then i was listening to how i built this uh by guy oh, ross oh yeah and i can't remember who it was but um a very famous entrepreneur had like the exact same story. And all I could think when I heard it is, wow, every time somebody hears me say that, they're just going to think I ripped it off of this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So what did the school say about that whenever you would do that? Would they care? Um, I mean, I think I was a little bit sneakier with it. But I also think, you know, back then it wasn't, things weren't as strict. There wasn't this huge, you know, uh, issue of bringing outside food and Mm-hmm. and stuff like that um but i obviously wasn't doing it like on a scale where it would be noticeable yeah either you know just kind of bringing it into the lunchroom and and the word of mouth would spread that you know kevin's got sour patch kids <laughs> next guy i know i got a little line formed um but it wasn't you know on any sort of scale where i'm like standing next to the the cafeteria lines with a booth or anything like that yeah gotcha that's great so in 2003 i saw you went to arizona state university what did you study there 2003, man, I was still in high school in 2003, or I wasn't even in high school in 2003. Wait, um, your LinkedIn says 2003, you began at Arizona State, I believe. Oh, wow. I was really smart at a young age. Uh, <laughs> no, so, I didn't so get when to did ASU you... until okay. 2010. 2010, uh, okay. Yeah, so I graduated high school in 2009, went to ASU in, in 20, uh, the summer of 2009, um, and did four years uh, as an accounting major uh, knowing that I had no interest in doing accounting full time. Mm. Um, I had gotten into the business school or the undergraduate business school, I should say. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do for my major. My first choice was back then it was, um, a, it was a management degree, business management with a focus in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And my dad, ironically, who has owned his own business most of his life, kind of steered me away from it. Um, just kind of saying, you know, what are you going to learn in a management, you know, role or management, uh, major 
what kind of, you know, industry can you go into with that? What kind of job can you go going into that? And, and I couldn't really answer that question for him, even with mm. the focus on entrepreneurship, it was like, Oh, you know, I was like, Oh, I'll just start my own business. And he goes, all right. And what, you know, what do you have experience in? What are you going to start a business in? What industries have you learned? Yeah. What industries do you understand? And per usual, I was like, all right, my dad's making a lot of sense here. Um, so I ended up getting a, uh, internship with a big four accounting firm after my, I want to say after my freshman year. Uh, no, it would have been after my sophomore year. Um, and when I came back to school, I, I had changed my major to accounting, um, not because I loved the work, but because I was 19 years old getting paid $25 an hour mm. um, and time and a half for overtime. So I was going back to school with a lot of money. And all I could think is like, oh, man, you know, accounting pays well and I understand it. Um, I'm good enough at it. You know, maybe I'll just do that. Yes. Um, so I decided to go with, with with accounting, but I did take entrepreneurship classes for the, the majority of my, uh, I guess you'd say electives. Mm hmm. Um, and then I interned at that company my sophomore summer, junior summer, and senior summer. And typical route would have been for me to go back to school for one more year, get a master's in, in tax or audit, um, and then go back and, and start at the firm full time. Um, so I did accept the offer at the firm to return full time, even though uh, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. It was kind of like a, a safety net. Yeah. Um, but rather than going back to school and getting that master's in tax, I went back and uh, and at that point, the management entrepreneurship degree and management with the focus on entrepreneurship had had switched into um, separate degrees. So there was now an actual major uh, degree in entrepreneurship. Okay. Um, and it actually just switched the summer before I went back. So I was the first and only 2014 graduate of the entrepreneurship school. Um, in, wow. the, in the graduation book, it, it lists out all the majors and the names underneath. And it, I'm the only one under that name. So it's kind of funny. That is, um, but crazy. I had taken enough, enough of those entrepreneurship classes through my undergrad or my first degree in undergrad, um, that I was only a few credits away from the major itself. So that was kind of a nice little, um, leisurely fifth year, um, to get that second degree and actually learn far more in that one year than I did in my previous four, simply because I was, I was just far more interested in the information I was being taught. For sure. So with your time at Arizona State, were you involved with any athletics or clubs outside of the entrepreneurship program? Um, so after middle school and the whole little candy selling and whatnot, I did a few <laughs> other things. And then in high school, um, I believe I was 14 or 15, I started a t-shirt company. And okay. I kind of ran that through my sophomore year of college. Um, but once I got to college, I'd kind of pivoted out of my own like brand and designs into doing shirts for uh, you know, fraternities and sororities and musicians and clubs and intramural teams and things like that. Mm. Um, so I was kind of involved in that way. I also did join a fraternity when I was a freshman and ended up getting kicked off campus, um, basically for partying. <laughs> and so me and my pledge class about, you know, probably 12 guys, very hands on 25 guys in total, we actually turned around and started our own fraternity. Um, and, you know, went through all the, all the hoops that, that that involves with nationals and all that and kind of getting a house set up. And, um, so that was kind of a full-time gig while in school was kind of getting that thing up and running. Gotcha. So what was your overall experience like at Arizona state? Was it pretty good? Fairly for I'd yourself go back tomorrow if I could. Yeah, totally. So prior to Southern scholar, what kinds of jobs were you working out of college? Then you said you accepted the tax job Were there any other opportunities? Yeah. So when I was doing that entrepreneurship degree, um, I just couldn't kind of get the idea. And I, and I, I always knew I wanted to start my own business. Um, mm -hmm. you know, from a very, very young age, I really didn't think I would work for anybody for any extended period of time. Um, 
but anything kind of fell into my lap just because, you know, kind of the situation I explained, I got that internship at a young age and my dad had kind of pushed me away from the entrepreneurship degree to start. Um, so I started during that fifth year, just kind of spitballing different ideas and thinking about what kind of, what I could get into. Um, and I had a few concepts, but I thought that I would kind of take the advice of my dad and kind of go learn an industry or several. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think what the easiest way to use kind of my skill set and the things I'm interested in and, and learn several industries at a time to see where, you know, I kind of, what I kind of love to do and where I fit in. And so I started applying for management consulting jobs, thinking that might be a good step. Um, unfortunately I didn't get any of those jobs. Arizona state pedigree didn't quite stand up to the Yale and Harvard students that were applying. Yeah. Um, so I ended up accepting that, that accounting job, um, all right. I'd already accepted that. I ended up going to do that, um, in July of 14. And, um, I was there about eight weeks, maybe a little bit less when I decided I was going to start my own thing. Gotcha. Um, so aside from a few, you know, bar jobs in college and running a, a very small t-shirt line, I didn't have any experience, three internships at an accounting firm with, with no, uh, accounting background and minimal accounting classes. So doing, you know, very kind of Excel based hands off, nothing technical work. Yeah. Um, I had, I had essentially zero experience in anything if, if I'm being blunt. Gotcha. So in 2014, this is when Southern Scholar came about. Yes. Yeah. What were you saying? Yeah. So I was sitting in my, in the office, basically looking around Mm -hmm. and just, and kind of pondering how I could get out of that office. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, I just noticed, man, everybody in my office from interns to, you know, your 55 year old partners. Um, they were all, for the most part, wearing some sort of pattern dress look. Mm. Um, and I was, as, <clears throat> excuse me, I was as well. What I noticed for me was I used to walk to work. I lived just under a mile away okay. um, in downtown Dallas. And by the time I would get, you know, 15 steps out my door, my socks are down at my ankle. Mm. Um, by the time I would get to the office and back in the afternoon, take my shoes off, my socks are, you know, ridden with holes. Um, they're soaked from sweat. They're just, they're just not working out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed some of the other guys in the office constantly were kind of stopping, bending down, pulling their socks back up. I noticed a lot of the younger guys were wearing socks that I wouldn't deem office appropriate, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, orange, white, and gray camouflage. And, yeah. um, then on the other side, I noticed that a lot of the guys that were wearing these kind of more, um, you know, loud novelty style socks, they didn't have any concept of how to kind of match it to the rest of their outfit. Mm-hmm. So they might be wearing a, you know, a black slack, black shoe and, and, you know, a white shirt. And then they've got this like just super contrasted orange and purple pair of socks on that just didn't go. Yeah. Um, so I started thinking, what if I could come up with a line of dress socks that fit well, was comfortable, didn't fall on your leg all day. Um, and then also offered styles that were unique, but professional that were, you know, office appropriate, but still had a little bit of style to them, a little bit of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what if I could also provide kind of some style know-how with each pair? So kind of a, we do what's called a style card that shows you on one side and then tells you on the other exactly what to wear with that pair of socks from head to toe um, mm-hmm. in both the business casual and a business business professional uh, atmosphere. Gotcha. So did you outsource production for the first prototype or you weren't making this in-house, were you? No, different- no, which is really funny when I tell people, you know, if I'm out at a bar or restaurant and someone asks what I do and I tell them that, um, I own a dress sock company 
and they'll turn around to friends and be like, oh, this guy, this, this guy sells socks or you make socks. And I'll have, I'll have one of their friends chime in and be like, you like, you like knit, you like knit socks. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah. I'm just sitting in my house all day knitting socks. Oh uh, man. No, man. So, so, uh, we started off and I reached out to probably right off the bat, probably about 30 different, um, manufacturers all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, got all their samples in, um, and kind of tested out each one day to day kind of see what I liked, what I didn't. And then I would kind of cross-reference the material blends that we were using with each one and the quality of the manufacturer itself Mm -hmm. um, until we slowly kind of got to, um, you know, narrow down on on some of the materials that we really liked and at what percentages in the blend and uh, which suppliers, you know, were just clearly higher quality control or higher quality in general. Um, And just kind of kept going that way. I mean, to date, we've probably sampled with 60 60 to 75 different suppliers and Mm hundreds of material blends um and you know our socks themselves have been reiterated over and over and over over the past six years yeah did you acquire any funding say for your first production round then yeah so it's it's a relatively long story i don't want to get too far into but i did yeah. end up bringing a few months in i brought in uh one of my buddies as a uh silent investor very small amount of capital but just you know enough to kind of what i thought could get us to launch basically first round of product um yeah and all that kind of stuff and then we were supposed to have a a second you know i wouldn't even not even close to a round but um a second supply of funding from him another small amount right after launch that was going to be meant for you know starting advertising costs essentially yeah Um, that ended up kind of falling apart um and kind of went out the window so uh i think the day that i launched the company we had about 850 bucks in the account um hadn't put a dime into marketing that was all kind of product mm-hmm. um set up all the kind of the the admin stuff that has to be taken care of totally um and yeah so it was uh it was a pretty risky move i ended up getting um essentially buying him out getting the getting the uh the company launched on the 15th of november of 2015 with basically the goal of uh getting it out there right before the holidays uh, we had no advertising budget. We had no capital. We had again eight hundred and something dollars in the account. I thought if we don't get this launched um, before peak season, yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna be in some trouble here. So was able to kind of I quit my job. Like I said, I started early July of fourteen. I uh, started working on this late July, early August, kind of nights and weekends um, for the next year. And I, I actually quit that job at the accounting firm on my one year anniversary. Uh, I think I quit on the end of July. I went to Vegas that weekend, had three days to kind of wind down, have some fun. And then Monday morning, um, landed in Dallas and started my day full time uh, for myself. And the rest is pretty much history. That's awesome. So from that first launch, how many sock selections did you have from the start then? All right. So our biggest issue um, with having no capital to go towards marketing was how are we going to get? So I don't even think I've mentioned this yet. When I first, when Southern Scholar first started, and and this is how it ran for the first, you know, three and a half, four years, mm-hmm. we were one hundred percent subscription based. Okay. Um, we did not sell one-off e-commerce. The only way you could buy individual pairs is if you were a member of our of our Sock the Month Club. You could log into your subscription account. You could access our kind of you know shop, and you could shop previous styles and add on extra pairs each month and 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 whatnot. But if you were not a member of that sock of the month club you you could not get our socks um 
And at the time when I, when I thought of this whole subscription sock concept, when I was back at PwC and, and kind of getting this idea off the ground, I thought that I was the most in, innovative person in the world. I was like dollar shave clubs taking off and all these other companies are doing, you know, these subscriptions and like, why not socks? Like, yeah. you know, business people have to wear socks every day. Like, why not socks? Like nobody's doing that. And I got <laughs> home that night and started Googling and was like, oh, a lot of people are doing that. <laughs> there are so many sock subscriptions out there, but I, I wasn't at all deterred because I was wondering why have I not heard of these companies? I'm obviously their, their demographic, their target market. They're obviously doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, if I haven't heard of, of this whole sock subscription concept, they're not marketing correctly. Um, and I'm kind of sitting there thinking like, this is going to be, you know, open season. I'm going to clean up here. Um, <laughs> just having no experience, no knowledge, no understanding of the competitive landscape of digital marketing at the time. You know, I'm thinking this is going to be a cakewalk in year one. We're going to hit a million dollars and yeah, totally. and be off to the races. And, and, uh, yeah, as you can kind of tell where the story's going, that was not the case. Um, I learned very quickly that I knew absolutely nothing about this industry. Um, and, and it was going to be a long run. Um, but I think that's a, a long winded half answer to your question was how many socks did we start with? Yeah. Uh, so with dress socks there and with, with any textile, really there's, there's a minimum order quantity that needs to be hit. Um, and I knew with no capital to put towards marketing, we weren't going to hit, um, that MOQ for each month. And obviously each month had to be a different style because our members couldn't get the same style month after month after month. So what I ended up doing is basically creating a good enough relationship with our supplier at the time and convincing them to drop the MOQ to 500 pairs per style. Mm-hmm. if I bought uh, a year's worth at a time. So I started off with, I think, 10 to 12 styles at 500 a piece um, and was able to kind of fill out our inventory for the first year. So were these like sitting in your home and then you would ship them out then? each The 500 orders of 16 textiles, were these like... Well, again, we didn't have right off the bat 500 subscribers. Yeah. So... Like month one, and forgive my memory, I want to say at the end of month one, we had just over 120 subscribers. So that means I've got 380 (laughs) pairs of that style left over. Yeah. So that's when the idea of like, oh, let's start up this little member shop and we can throw in our previous ones in there. And as more people sign up that missed out on the, you know, the November 2015 sock because they signed up in January of 16, they can go back and buy that one. Mm. Um, and obviously that's not going to move those socks all too quickly, but yes, they were sitting in boxes, floor to ceiling, wall to wall of my apartment bedroom at the time. Mm. Um, I had a bed in the middle, a tiny desk on the left side, and then the (laughs) other two walls, floor to ceiling were these cardboard boxes filled with, with, uh, what is that? 5,000, 6,000 pairs of socks. Yeah. Yeah. So how were you able to get rid of that inventory then? Like how long did that take as well? Um, if I'm being honest, I still probably have a few hundred of them sitting in my closet as we speak. Yeah. Um, because shortly after, and again, our first run was, was very high quality, very nice. Our customers absolutely love them. Mm -hmm. Um, but slowly, but surely I I learned more about textiles and, and manufacturing and, um, and was able to kind of improve upon that, upon that product. And really what pushed me to do that. Um, and I don't get into this all too often is another company, um, actually local here, had ordered a few pairs of our socks and uh, basically ripped off our material blend and launched a new um, business collection, basically, oh, with our line. Um, and so, you know, most people, or maybe not most, but a lot of people would kind of, 
you know, what do I do here? They just, where do I even start? They just stole our blend. They're trying to compete with us. They were around before us, yada, yada. I didn't kind of sit there and sulk. Uh, I was more <laughs> flattered than anything. Um, but I, I just kind of turned around and started researching and, and seeing what I could do and ended up iterating on those, those original socks and making them far, far better. Mm. Um, and at that point, when you have a good product and a great product, you don't even want to sell the good product. Yeah. Um, sure. and, and I, and I still to this day, six years later, I guess five years since launch coming up here. Um, I still like almost consider my name on every single pair that goes out. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we got those, those higher quality socks, we, we kind of donated the bulk of our, um, of our previous runs and just completely switched over. Gotcha. Um, and then since then, I mean, we've iterated again, two or three times we've switched suppliers to kind of higher quality suppliers. And most recently, I think we've, we've had about the same, uh, the same iteration essentially with a few tweaks and the same supplier for the last like three and a half years. We just, we've kind of finally found that, that one supplier that is just bar none levels above all the others. Um, mm -hmm. we just have a really good relationship with them. Um, but I did hold on to about a hundred of each of those, uh, 10 styles. We donated the rest and, and the other ones I kept in my closet and, uh, kind of in the hopes that one day I can do something with them as kind of a, you know, a memory of kind of where we came from, kind of For frame sure. one of each or give them out to some of our original customers that are still with us or something like that. But yeah, we still, uh, we still have a few of those that we donated <laughs> the rest. Um, we, we certainly did not offhand all of them. Gotcha. So with such a low or even no marketing budget, then how were you advertising at this time? Essentially organic social media and word of mouth. Um, okay. We didn't even really do email at the time um, regrettably, uh, now that I know kind of the power of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but my mentality was like, we don't have enough money to be, I mean, we weren't even doing PVC ads. We weren't running any Facebook ads, any Google, mm -hmm. um, until the end of like year three. And so my thought process on email, aside from, um, you know, our, our monthly members, we, we emailed them a little bit about sales and going to buy more out of the shop and things like that. I just didn't think that it was going to be worth it because of it was going to be such a slow start to building a list when you're not sending a ton of traffic from, you know, these paid mediums, yeah. it's very hard to build a list. Um, so it was really, it was really word of mouth and organic social. And to be frank, I don't even really know if our organic social strategy back then was working all too well. Um, we did a lot of the, you know, the no, no's that people know now we, we did a follow one follow oh, yeah. service with a bot. And, you know, at the time it was like, Oh, we're growing, you know, 2,500, followers a month. Uh, you know, this is crazy. This is awesome. And then all of a sudden after three or four months, you see your engagement just tank and you realize, uh Oh, we messed up. Yeah. For real. The, um, the algorithm's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, our, our first three years were essentially word of mouth. We didn't really have the budget nor the, the know how to do anything else. Um, and surprisingly it, it, you know, it, it worked well enough yeah. to kind of get us to where we are now. For sure. So looking at Southern Scholar today, what would you say separates Southern Scholar from your competitors then? Oh man, everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, our blend is just, it's just levels above anything else in the market. We don't use any cotton or wool. Um, cotton's been the long time kind of favorite for socks. And mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of kind of marketing language around all these new different variations of cotton and your bamboo and your this and that. And um, at the end of the day, cotton is not the uh, choice fabric for anything that has to form fit. Mm. There's a reason why 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it was, 
um, you stopped seeing guys show up to the gym in cotton t-shirts and everything went to these performance fabrics that are, you know, polyester rayon base from Under Armour and Nike and all that. Um, if you put on a cotton t-shirt, just your standard Hanes cotton t-shirt or, you know, any, any graphic shirt that kids wore in the nineties, put that shirt on, yank on the collar a little bit and see if it goes back to where it was or if it, if it hangs, you know, mm. if it stays hanging. Um, I yeah. think Hanes even did an article or an article, a commercial on this with Michael Jordan years ago called like bacon neck. I don't um, think I've seen it. It where basically the crew neck kind of gets wavy and, and it's not, it's not kind of in the shape that it's meant to be because cotton has very poor shape retention. Mm -hmm. um, it has very poor elasticity. So when you're trying to take a, a sock or anything that has to kind of form fit around a body part and hold tight, what's going to happen when you use cotton or any, or, or wool for that matter. Um, yeah. Is every time, you, <clears throat> excuse me, every time you pull it over your sock or over your leg, that fabric's going to kind of dwindle a little bit and loosen a little bit and loosen a little bit. And that's what causes the original kind of drooping and falling down your leg. That's what makes uh, that kind of space in between the leg and the sock after a few wears when you, you know, bend your ankle and you've got this like, uh, like curl over on the bottom of the sock. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not the fabric. It's not the, it's not the choice fabric yet. Everybody uses it because it's dirt cheap. It's easy to source. Every manufacturer works with it. Um, there's no, you know, minimum order quantities on, on color dyeing because everybody uses it. So it's always at, you know, it's always at hand. Um, yeah. and we run, we run into a lot of sourcing issues and a lot of kind of minimum issues and, and all that, just because the materials that we use are not super readily available in every color possible. So we have to, we have to, um, spin dye everything. We have to kind of cover certain minimum order quantities on fabrics alone. A lot of the time, if we, if we're not going to, you know, be producing that many styles in that color, we'll have to buy that that fabric color anyway and just kind of store it until we do yeah um, so sure. from a cash flow perspective an inventory perspective it does become a nightmare or sorry from a supply chain perspective it does become kind of a nightmare um but when the product quality is that you know that superior uh it makes it far far worth it totally so is southern scholar today is it 100 percent e-commerce or are you in any retail uh, or yeah so we do a little bit of retail it's certainly not our focus Sure. Um, but specialty menswear shops, golf courses, country clubs, uh, pro shops, things like that. Um, we certainly do. And this coming year, we'll probably explore that opportunity a lot more. Um, we've had a lot of people reach out to us about it and, mm -hmm. uh, leading into Q4 here, it's just, it's not been my, my focus is certainly on the e-commerce side. Um, but yeah. about a year and a half ago, I want to say we introduced it in July of 19 and and kind of started marketing it in February of 20. So just about eight months ago. Yeah. Um, we went from a full subscription to open e-commerce um, and we've kind of switched our focus. We still have our subscription. We'll always uh, maintain that subscription. We still have, you know, a lot of people on that and people that love that offering. Mm -hmm. um, but we do now offer the ability to go and purchase our socks without a, a monthly subscription. Um, it is at a higher price point. If you are a member, you get members pricing, but, um, that's kind of proven to be far more successful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with the, with the number of people out there that are just obsessed with socks and, and obsessed with, you know, style and menswear and the way they look like you would be surprised. We have people go in and, you know, spend $300 at a time on socks. Wow. Um, and then return two weeks later when we launch six new styles and buy all those. And so giving people the, the option to kind of stock up, pick your own styles, um, get as many as you want at a time versus, you know, get the one pair a month that we design and send out. Um, that's kind of been a huge game changer for us, giving those two options. Totally. So something I uh, noticed on your website is you respond to all 
customer concerns. And I, I think that's, I really respect that. And has a lot of intimacy with your new brand. I was wondering, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Do you have like, do you work morning through night then? Like responding to these emails or do you do you set a time to respond or what does that look uh, like? Man, it's, uh, it kind of depends on the day. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the fact that customer support um, is the last thing you should offhand, the last thing you should outsource or push down to another employee. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who it is. Nobody is going to take care of your customers the way that you are. Nobody's yeah. going to care about the business the way that you do. So that kind of goes back to what I said earlier, where every time we send out a pair of socks, I almost feel like my name is on it because if somebody responds and says, Hey, you know, there was a, a default or there's a fault with my sock, um, or it was, you know, it didn't fit right, or there's this, or there's a hole in it or whatever. Um, I'm the one responding and apologizing for that issue and explain to them, this is certainly not the norm. Let me send you, you know, another couple pairs on the house. Um, get this out first thing in the morning. We'll send a priority shipping, whatever we can do to kind of make that, that poor experience turn into a good one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge reason why we were able to kind of grow with the word of mouth side. Um, yeah. For the first four years, and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that I haven't looked at it recently just because um, the subscription side has become kind of a secondary uh, focus. Mm. But for the first four years, we had a 4% uh, churn rate month over month, which is just legendary for the subscription space. Yeah. Generally 18% plus very successful companies keep it around eight or nine. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're retaining 96% of our customers month after month. And that, that speaks wow. to the quality of our product, but also, uh, to the customer service side. Um, when, when I'm handling, you know, anybody's issue or concern, or even the one responding when somebody just wants to tell us how much they love the socks, it does create that kind of community. It does make people feel heard and appreciated. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just goes a very long way. I want to say that it was, um, carry over at, at Taft that, uh, said in a podcast, I heard once that, uh, customer service will be the last thing that he ever outsources. Um, yeah. and I have a great admiration for them and what they've done over at Taft. And, and so that kind of stood, you know, kind of stuck in my heart and I, and I already kind of felt that way. Um, but it does, to your point, it does create, um, some inefficiencies, day to day. Yeah. Um, because if I'm, and I try to, I try to not, you know, just sit there and refresh inboxes and, <laughs> and I try and keep my, my phone face down while it's playing a podcast or music, whatever I'm listening to. So I'm not, um, getting distracted by the screen lighting up or whatever. Yeah. But there are certainly times where I'm in the middle of, you know, doing something, um, trying to get a task done, trying to get some ads run, trying, trying to get something, you know, going. And I, go to my second screen where my email is and it refreshes and I see uh, a customer email and I can tell from the first line, like, Oh, they're not happy. Yeah. Um, and I will just kind of stop what I'm doing and respond to them and, and kind of, I want to, I want to make sure that they're heard and, and responded to as quickly as possible so that they're not sitting there wondering if we're just another one of those companies that takes three days to respond or doesn't respond at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it certainly does cause some, some, you know, inefficiencies in those processes. And I, and I, I try and do my best to, uh, minimize the back and forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely nights where, um, you know, I'm getting in bed at midnight one or two in the morning and a customer email comes in and I'll respond right away. Mm. Um, and it kind of shows them a lot, shows that we care, shows that we appreciate their business. Yeah. Um, but don't get me wrong. There's other days where I've had a long one and <laughs> I just kind of put the phone away, you know, at nine o'clock totally. and I don't look at it till the morning. Um, yeah. there's not really anything, you know, consistent or any certain, you know, daily plan. 
every day is different. And I think that's kind of the beauty of entrepreneurship. For sure. So I conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've regret or you've learned, uh, what would that be? Um, I'll give you two. Um, Something that I've learned is that the digital landscape is not what any outsider thinks. Um, I, I still to this day have friends that are just like, they think that you just, you have a product, um, you throw it up on some Facebook ads and you're just making millions of dollars off the bat. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is number one, focus on the product, make sure that your, your product is better or different. Um, ideally better because it's different than anything else on the market. Um, I think it might've been, was it Nate in one of your most recent episodes that said there's two sides to a business. It's, it's making a great product and being able to sell that great product. I think, Uh, yeah. Nate from Roan. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was him. Yep. Um, I think, I think to, in today's, uh, world, so many companies focus so much more on how are we going to sell this product than the product itself? Um, and in my opinion, it should really be a 60, 40. You've got to have that phenomenal product before you go and sell it because how are you going to have a shitty product, excuse my language and, and go and, and run an ad that says like, Oh, we make the best this and, and we're so great and you need to try us and da da da. Like, how can you even, yeah. How can you feel honest when you're doing that? Right. Um, so first off, what I would say is focus on the product before you focus on selling the product. Um, if the product is as good as, as you, you know, say it is, it'll, not sell itself, but you'll have a much better time doing that. Mm. Um, and sorry, what was the, I said I had two here and I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> oh, oh what I regret. Um, I'm very much the type of person who is open about what I know and don't know, mm. unless I feel like I should know it. Then I hesitate to admit that I don't. And I think that that's held me back as an individual and an entrepreneur um, in my life. If, if I'm you know, talking with somebody who is far more knowledgeable um, than I am in the e-commerce space, or the digital marketing space, or the textile space, and they say something, and I don't quite understand it, but I kind of think to myself that I, I should. And if I, if I admit to them that I don't, they're going to think I don't know anything about anything. Mm. Um, that was my mentality when I first kind of got into this space. And, and again, I was young, I was 22 or 23 years old when I started this business. So if I'm talking to a 30 year old that's been in this space forever, um, I may not be as hesitant to say, Hey, can you explain that to me? I didn't quite catch that. Or, or do you mind going over that with me? Mm. Um, but if I'm talking to somebody who's my age, who's, you know, I guess, quote unquote, farther ahead of me, I was almost afraid to ask those questions. I didn't want them to think like, Oh, this kid doesn't know anything. Yeah, um, for sure. But at the end of the day, that, that fear of like, pretending to know things you don't is going to hold you back so far. Um, and asking those questions and, and admitting what you don't know and, and wanting to learn what you don't know, mm-hmm. that's going to just propel you forward. For sure. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Southern Scholar at southernscholar.com. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.